Welcome once again to another episode of the Harry Potter Book Club. I'm Trevor. I'm Crystal. I'm Sylvia. I'm Alex. I'm Matt. And I'm Vera, and I'm here with my baby Teddy. He might make some noises. Welcome, newest member of the Harry Potter Book Club. We are glad you have joined us, and dear listener, we're glad that you have joined us. But before we jump into the next chapter of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, chapter 15, we want to remind you that you can get in touch with us in a number of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at HPBC Podcast. You can reach out to us with comments and questions through email at hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. And we're also newly minted on Instagram. And the handle there is also at hpbcpodcast. Perfect. So we would love it if you would follow us, stay up to date on the latest HPBC happenings, uh, find interesting links, memes... Uh, even pictures of the feasts that we have every uh, Harry Potter Book Club meeting on our Instagram account. But with that said, introductions out of the way, uh, we're going to turn to Chapter 15, The Forbidden Forest. Gang, it has been a, a long time uh, since uh, we started this journey through Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. We are really getting into the home stretch. Uh, with these final chapters. Uh, chapter 15 opens with the gang coming down from the astronomy tower, realizing they've forgotten the invisibility cloak, and being confronted by none other than Professor McGonagall. Yeah, for me, when I was reading this scene, I just felt really bad for Neville. Mm-hmm. I mean, He's just wrong place, wrong time. He's not as sneaky as everyone else. Well, he doesn't have a cloak. Yeah, he doesn't have a cloak. I mean, I guess you're right. But he just, he's trying to help, you know, and just stumbles over his own feet again. Well, that's like Neville for the first four books or so. Yeah. You know, really the first six. (laughs) That's Neville till the last page (laughs) of the last last book. book. (laughs) Yeah. Was anybody unconvinced of the way Professor McGonagall assumed she knew what was going on. This was one of those almost like deus ex machina sorts of things Mm -hmm. where the plot gets to a place where there's no way out, but then the author has this magical sort of escape hatch. Because I'm listening to it or or reading it, um, and it seems like, oh gosh, like, how are they going to get out of this? The stakes are really high. And then McGonagall just starts spouting off that I know what happened. But even then, she says, You fed Draco Malfoy some cock and bull story about a dragon trying to get him out of bed and into trouble. I've already caught him. I suppose you think it's funny that Longbottom here heard the story and believed it too. And of course, that's a, that's a great story that could potentially make sense of everything except why would they be up in the astronomy tower if they actually fed draco malfoy a cock and bull story to get him into trouble why are they out of Mm -hmm. gryffindor house gryffindor Mm. tower uh potentially getting in trouble themselves i'm i'm wondering if i'm missing something but i went through that over and over again thinking the pieces aren't adding up here for me. I agree. I I didn't really take it to the level that you did, I don't think. I didn't I didn't even consider that, you know, they were 
in the, the tower where they weren't supposed to be. I didn't consider that side of it. But I do think that it was a bad move on any teacher's part to give students an excuse, which is kind of what she does. She just hands them this excuse that's like, oh, this is why you're out of bed. Like, they're still in trouble, but Hagrid's not now, which was their goal. So, and I and I always go back to that fan theory that, like, the Hogwarts castle is sort of a, a, a character in itself, and so that it puts people in the right place at the right time, or maybe there's some unbeknownst magic working here, too, in the background. <clears throat> I think to support your argument, Trevor, she doesn't let them speak right away. She doesn't let them deny that story. Instead, she goes straight into, I'm disgusted, and, and continues on in the explanation of her story, reinforcing, I think, to herself and everyone around, that what she said is, is the, the only real facts that matter. And then everybody gets caught up with the fact that she then punishes them with this 50 point and everybody's distracted from well why did this all happen in the first place now everybody's just thinking about oh my goodness this is so severe this punishment yeah you're right in that the before she even talks about you know giving them the escape hatch she says explain yourselves i mean right before that and then nobody says anything and then she immediately goes into oh i know exactly what happened and she she gives them that escape and so I think it does, I guess, leave some credibility, I think, to your story. I mean, I guess I also think, you know, and there, you know, obviously we're not a part of this world, you know, this wizarding world. Speak for yourself. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but I'm just thinking, you know, like even, you know, Ron, Hermione, you know, like all of the people who have been a part of the wizarding world are like, where did you get a dragon? At? You know, it's so unbelievable. Would you think, you know, that these first years, these little first years, where are they going to get a dragon egg? You know, I mean, so there's a little bit, it's far-fetched to begin with, but you're right, she does give them an out easily. My, my only question then is, her motive, does she know that he's actually telling the truth and that Hagrid actually somehow managed to get a dragon and therefore McGonagall <laughs> is looking out for him and the easiest way that she could find to avoid any further investigation into Hagrid in this situation is by producing the severe punishment on Gryffindor, which would then take everyone, including Malfoy's, attention away from the possibility that Hagrid did something very, very bad. I don't know. I think it's the classic children's literature device mm -hmm. where the adults don't listen and they don't care what the kids are saying, but the kids are like the moral absolute. The kids know what's right and the kids know what's important, but the, the adults don't listen. They think it's the, the adults think it's childish games, you know, right. that they're playing when in reality, no, this is real stuff that's yeah. going on. Right. Um, which, which I, continues to happen. Like yeah, in the we, next chapter, there's more of that. Yeah. We <laughs> keep seeing that, you know, oh no, that someone is going to steal the Sorcerer's Stone and they say, oh okay. no, 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 it's no. It's safe. It's you safe. don't know what you're it's talking about. Yeah, it's taken care of. I made a massive game of wizard's chess. Right. It's <laughs> impenetrable. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you can play chess. Right. Nobody <laughs> wins at games of chess. Yeah. I think it's just against her character in general too. Like that's more of a Dumbledore-ish thing to do. Mm. And McGonagall's just too straight laced. Like mm. I think she's actually furious. But that does lead me to think I just I found myself going like, how long has she worked at this school? This is a school of teenagers. You're telling me she's never caught students out of bed. I know. There's no way that, that line. I've never been more ashamed of Gryffindor students. Seriously? Yeah. yeah. 
you have Fred and George Weasley <laughs> enrolled at the school right now. They are probably out of the tower as we speak. They're at Honeydukes. Yeah, causing some sort of ridiculous trouble. Like, it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of narrative episode because it is playing on this idea that McGonagall is the straight-laced disciplinarian who goes, gives, you know, the, the thickest penalty we've seen so far, 50 points each, stricken from Gryffindor. But for me, it's that missing piece of, okay, if, if McGonagall's story is true, it still doesn't explain why they were actually out of the Gryffindor Tower. Mm -hmm. that's, a, that's a missing piece of the puzzle that made the explanation not quite fit. I wonder if it's her assumption of, like, them bullying Neville in a way that makes her so disgusted. You know, like, she expected better of them, and they well, lured she, Neville out. She thought that Neville just overheard the story. Like, they were trying to get revenge somehow yeah. on Malfoy. Because, you know, they've got to know that there's some type of rivalry or right. something. There's bad blood going on between Harry and, and Draco. Um and it's there, but we see, you know, that 150 points are lost, you know, which takes Gryffindor well out of the lead, you know, and all of a sudden, I guess, the boy who lived is mm -hmm. now as unpopular yeah. as he was popular. Yeah, um, for the first time, really, in his Hogwarts career, right? Yeah. And these sorts of uh, reversals happen throughout the series, yeah. but this is the first time that he's confronted with one, and we're beginning to think, ooh, Hogwarts may not be the you know, rosiest place to be all the time when you're the one who's cost your entire house uh, point standings in the House Cup race. I thought um, there was just one short sentence in here that just kind of tugged at the heartstrings when it says, only Ron stood by him, <laughs> meaning Harry, you know. And uh, I thought it was very touching, you know. I mean, this is definitely, I guess... Friend, friendship through trial, you know, I mean, like, obviously, Harry's not the most popular guy to be around by now, but even Ron, you know, was kind of by Harry and sticking up for Harry, um, and we see that, of course, throughout the rest of the books, but it's definitely one of those tests, you know, that Ron, as a faithful friend, mm -hmm. passes. Even this, though, seems played up. Like, if we were in book five, and we heard this explanation that somebody lost 50 points, and the entire school turned against him, we'd be like, no. We we know more about Hogwarts and the way the, the point standings go up and down than to believe that, literally, he became a pariah right. with one solitary friend. It, but it's it's sort of part of that evolution of the point system that we've talked about before. Where before it was like one point to Gryffindor, and it was like, oh, throw a party because this is amazing. Yeah. It's like by book four, they're getting 20, having 20 taken away for the smallest things. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's just interesting, though, how you sort of have to suspend your understanding of the Hogwarts house points culture when you go back and read book one for the first time. Yeah. I found myself wondering whether or not Neville, who was sobbing in his pillow for hours before they woke up the next morning, I found myself wondering if he was sobbing because he felt betrayed by 
Harry and Hermione because of what Professor McGonagall said, or if because he had lost 50 points, probably a little bit of both, but he doesn't have nearly as much to lose as Harry does when he lost all those points. Like, he doesn't already have this reputation as, you know, the Quidditch hero. Or I just, in contrast, Harry's thinking about all the things he's lost, and Neville's just sobbing. So I wondered, what do you guys think? Maybe both? The betrayal's always what made me the saddest mm -hmm. about it, and I think that's probably... I mean, that's what stings, like, finally trying to make some friends and have people that you think maybe are potential friends, and then, boom, this he was, happens. He was trying to do something good. He was trying yeah. to help them, you know? Which is something they encouraged him to do, to stand up and be brave, and then he feels betrayed by them. Yeah. Well, I was wondering, did anyone else think it was a little ironic, their uh, detention? I mean, and by ironic, I mean that it took place, like, at 11 o'clock at night. And then it was supposed to, like, I think Filch was like, oh, I mean, we'll see you back at dawn. You know, meaning, like, oh, they're out of bed, you know, until dawn the next morning so i i, I didn't they're know with hagrid, they're with hagrid led them astray it, in the first place <laughs> exactly like i just thought it was a little ironic that their punishment in detention was hey you know stay up out of bed all night during exam season no less like go ahead and stay out of bed i don't know if anybody else caught that mm -hmm. yeah definitely yeah that is well, an extraordinary coincidence yeah which i think does actually perhaps lend some evidence to the idea that Perhaps McGonagall had an understanding of why they were out of bed and what mm. was going on. Maybe maybe there's more there. It's possible. It's possible, yeah, but I still think that's a Dumbledore quality, you know, that just other teachers do not have like Dumbledore does. I mean, Dumbledore probably knows everything that's going on. Yeah, and Dumbledore also knows that Harry's kind of marked for death anyway. Yeah. So he's more apt to be less protective, I guess, of Harry. Yeah. Let him try his own. Well, and in our last book discussion, we've had a number of episodes on different topics since we we were at um, chapter 14 on Norbert, the Norwegian Ridgeback. But we were kind of talking about, what is this chapter doing here? Just saying in the macro structure of the story. And one of the things that we said uh, was, yes, it, it adds that interesting detail about Hagrid sort of spilling the beans that we'll hear about in the next chapter uh, over cards about Fluffy. Um, but it also is kind of the catalyst that gets them into the Forbidden Forest yeah. together. Um, so it's it, it seems like uh, the story was intentionally crafted in such a way that we, we were being directed to the Forbidden Forest because that was the only place where we were going to learn some of the important things that we need to learn yeah. in order for the plot to keep going. And also, it's the same um, theme of Hogwarts is a dangerous place. Like, even the whole detention. Like, let's send them out into a dangerous, hmm. unknown place all night. The place night, they're not allowed to go. Unchaperoned, sort yeah. of. Yeah, that... Like, with a you know guy who doesn't even have a wand that we know of, you know. So, it, it's Hogwarts is a dangerous place. He's got a crossbow, I mean, at least. But he says, oh, nothing's going to hurt you as long as you're with... Me and Fang, and he's got a, a crossbow. I, I don't know. There's and then a, they split up. Yeah, then they split. I don't know. It just... Yeah, they shouldn't be there. They shouldn't be in the Forbidden Forest. I don't get how this is a, an actual detention. 
Hagrid also says, well, he says there's nothing in here that will hurt you as long as you're with me or Fang. And then, like, five minutes later, he says, there's something in here that shouldn't be. Oh, yeah. So I it's know. like, okay, but maybe you should gather the yeah. children and protect them and get them out of the forest. But no, we've got to get this finished. Yeah. Let's keep pressing on yeah. deeper into the woods. Not only that, but I mean, I don't want to push too far ahead. And But he says, you know, like once he, they see the red sparks from Neville and Malfoy, oh, you guys wait right here. I'm going to oh, go I check know. this right. out. You know, and so <laughs> they wait there alone while there's something that shouldn't be there. Yeah, that thing about universe. being with you, Hagrid. Yeah. Right. Do we, do we're, we're just first years. We don't know any defensive spells, no. any offensive spells either. I mean, we know no spells. <laughs> <laughs> we are incredibly vulnerable. Yeah, they do know Wingardium Leviosa. Yeah, well, that. and in the in the in the next chapter, I was quite impressed when Flitwick's practice exam was to have a pineapple tap dance across the desk. I was like, listen, from what I know about these first yeah. years, they cannot do that. Yeah. <laughs> Like, McGonagall is like, turn a mouse into a, <laughs> a snuff, snuff box. box. And Flitwick's like, make this pineapple, you know, do ragtime. <laughs> Sorry, can't do that. And everybody else is like, what's ragtime? Yeah. What's a snuff box? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, from the, the episode with McGonagall, we are then taken into this overhearing of Professor Quirrell. Oh, yeah. uh, really, really interesting small scene that again builds the sort of dramatic tension that we're feeling before before detention actually comes around. I mean, Harry thinks it's Snape, right, P- mm-hmm. pushing Quarrel into you know telling his secret, whatever it is, you know, to get to the stone, but. I mean, I, I know I've, there's an obvious answer for me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think everybody's got it on their tongues what they think it is. But I mean, what did you guys think it was that he was? I guess being talking pushed. to Voldemort. Oh. <laughs> oh. Snapchat. Okay. I mean, but what <laughs> do, you, do you think it was like, hey, you need to go after the stone, or hey, let's we need some unicorn blood? So that that was a question. I'm curious to hear this as well. Yes, I think he's. He's definitely being berated by Voldemort in the back of his head. Mm-hmm. And when, no, no, not again, please. I wrote in the margin, not what again? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The unicorn? Because we know that there's been some issues with unicorns uh, in the forest. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it seems to me like with the way the action progresses in this chapter, what Voldemort's asking him to do is go... Take me to the Forbidden Forest. We need more unicorn blood. Yeah, that's what I always thought it was. Does that mean that another unicorn? Does that mean that Voldemort's time is running out, so to speak? I mean, why does he? Well, it makes him stronger. He, it makes him stronger. <laughs> I think, though. I mean, I had never considered that. Like, what again? But just hearing that, I think later in the dialogue, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in the dialogue with Harry and Quirrell, when he meets Quirrell face to face after going through the trap do- trap door. Doesn't Harry ask him about this scene, and he says, like, my master sees fit to, like, punish me at times? So I, I felt like, you know, knowing that, mm. looking back, it seems like he was being punished for something. I don't know. Maybe it was not wanting to drink unicorn blood. I'm not sure. But I always I always thought this was just somehow a punishment. <clears throat> well, it does say, you know, the one who drinks unicorn blood is cursed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't go into explicit detail about what exactly that means. I mean, True. I don't know if it's, if it's painful. I mean, if it, I don't know what 
Yeah, what does mm. it mean that that person is cursed for life? Right. Oh, the half-life? Yeah. Yeah, they don't really go into detail. That was enough to scare an 11-year-old, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing is, how? what's the physiology of this drinking? Like, is, is Voldemort the one drinking in the back of Quirrell's head? In which case... Whose How? esophagus is he using? Like, <laughs> or is Quirrell like ingesting it? In which case, how is Voldemort's soul that's attached to the back of his head? It's a complicated getting, relationship. It's, we need like the metaphysics oh. of I, of I, Horcrux. You I, know, I'm creation. curious too about the punishment in general. Like, what power does Voldemort have over Quirrell? Yeah. Because it seems like he's totally weak and right. dependent. When unicorn blood is precisely the last resort. Right. It will keep you living if you're when you're on death. the yeah. verge of death. Yeah. So what you know, what is he holding over Quarrel? What is he able to do to Quarrel from his very weak vantage point of right. the back of his head and no magical powers, it seems like, at this point. Yeah. I think he's just manipulative, like, with words. I mean, that's sort of how I always anticipated, you know, later again when they're having this dialogue. He comes across, I think, I don't remember when that dialogue happens, but he came across Quirrell in Albania and filled his filled his head with all these ideas. So I think he's just very manipulative with his word. I, does anybody remember what I'm talking about? Is that yeah. book seven? Mm-hmm. Or is, am I just... When they talk about Albania? Mm-hmm. Um, I, can't, I can't remember. Well, even at the end of this book, Quirrell quotes, you know, the teachings that Voldemort gave mm-hmm. him that he found really uh, enlightening and invigorating. Um, to us, quite distressing, mm-hmm. but to him, <laughs> like it's this this notion that hey, power's there for those who are brave enough to grab it. Yeah. For somebody with Quirrell's constitution, that may in fact be just the sort of message. You know, for someone who's weak and cowardly, from what we know of him, this empowering message that hey there, there is no good or evil only power you know not to spill the beans that that's that's coming but yeah um that i mean verbal manipulation is voldemort's calling card mm-hmm. sylvia and i have just finished book two listening to it um and that's a big theme in the big reveal in the cham- chamber of secrets like how did you actually do all this it's i can be quite charming when I have to be. Manipulating Ginny, right. yeah, appealing to her needs and wants as a lonely first year. Yeah. But even then, Quirrell's no, no, not again, please, suggests that Something there's a more. physical yeah. power. He's yeah. being constrained or or physically punished in some way. Yeah. Or it's the unicorn thing. That I do not want to go back to the Forbidden Forest right. and put myself in this scenario where we're hunting down this innocent magical creature. Mm-hmm. But in the progression of the story, we are led to believe that this is just further confirmation that Snape is guilty as charged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know about you guys, but in the first book... You're, you're really not sure how an author is going to tell the story. Is this the sort of thing, the sort of book that's going to progress where 
we've been dealing with this mystery and now we're getting this slow burn as things are progressively revealed up to the climax? Or is this the kind of book where we're being deceived because the protagonist is actually wrong in the assumptions that he's making and there's going to be this dramatic reversal at the end? The first time you're reading Sorcerer's Stone, you don't know. And so all of Harry's sort of confirming evidences, you're like, yes, yes, we're getting closer and closer. We're finally going to figure out what, what's going on with the Sorcerer's Stone. And then you're like, in the final chapter, oh, rug pulled yeah. out from under you. You've been wrong the whole time. Yeah. And Harry's, like, absolute belief that it's Snape also makes us just follow along with him. Like, I don't think, I don't think as a kid, I mean, I, I don't really remember, but I don't think that I picked up on it being Quirrell, even though they're, you know, looking back now, after how many times we've been through this book, there are clues everywhere that tell us it's Quirrell. Yeah. Um, but I just, there, I did not there realize are, I, I didn't catch it. This is my first time reading no. it. No, yeah. I didn't. There are, I think, and we've mentioned this before, that this is not the only time that we are fooled into thinking that Snape, you know, is the bad guy, you know, versus the good guy. You know, like, yeah. she keeps doing yeah. it over and over mm-hmm. and over. And then we ought, we think, you know, in book six that, oh, he's definitely a bad guy. He just <laughs> killed Dumbledore. You know, I mean, like, mm-hmm. she does it over and over and over again. You'd think we'd learn, but we never do. Yeah. I mean, we never do. Another one that comes to mind, it's not Snape-related, but in Chamber of Secrets, how you think it's Hagrid who opened the chamber. Um, and so there's that twist there of just who really did it, and you yeah. start to think, okay, well, this has been revealed, and then she switches it up on you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the difficulty is, though, that emotionally she's already hooked us onto Harry's perception of the world. We talked mm. about this in all of the early chapters, that Harry's perceptions of characters are the lasting perceptions that we get. Mm-hmm. We, we were talking, why do we love Hagrid so much? He's He acts kind of goofy, <laughs> like really unreliable, not a responsible adult. Why do we love him? And I was like, because Harry loves him. Because he was like the surrogate father for Harry in his moment of need. And it's like we got attached to him um, just like Harry did. So it's like we've been trained to trust Harry's read on things with Malfoy, with Ron, with with all of these things, so that when he makes an assessment of a situation, we're just like, oh yeah, I'm, he's right, I'm following him. Yeah. Of course, by the end of it, you know, we, we do, we get to book six and seven, and we're like, I don't even know what to think anymore. <laughs> like, what is happening? <coughs> Well, ought we to journey into the Forbidden Forest? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, so it's nighttime. In the Forbidden Forest. In the Forbidden Forest. With Hagrid and Fang. I've got to think that this is part of the reason why the population of wizards is so small in England. If almost all of them are getting trained at Hogwarts <laughs> and the class size is only like, what? Five. Know, <laughs> five per house per year. <laughs> then... You know, they gotta be they gotta be losing a lot of kids <laughs> in the Forbidden Forest. Yeah. And we do, we do see that. We do see a lot of kids. Well, we find that they're gonna do something useful, I guess, 
which, you know, they are tasked with going and finding these unicorns, which we've alluded to uh, before. Um, but it it's still, you know, we know there's werewolves, and I know we brought it up. I mean, there's... I mean, there's really dangerous things, I guess, in there, and I just... I just don't get why they're going, but I mean, I guess we should go ahead and just push past that and say, okay, now they're in and they split up. Um, and I don't know how they didn't think or how they thought that Neville and Malfoy would be a good fit together, you know, to go off into, into the forest. It's beyond me. Yeah. I don't know why splitting up period was a good idea. Well, there's, there's two paths, you know, we've got to cover <laughs> both of them, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's this is this is one of those chapters where when you press on the details, it's like, who is making the decisions at this school? Yeah, like it's not just that the Forbidden Forest is incredibly dangerous; it's that your explicit purpose is to go do the most dangerous thing we can think of in the Forbidden Forest, because whatever creature is killing unicorns has got to be some kind of heinous evil. Yeah, I mean, well, go ahead, first years. They even said, you know, like, <laughs> oh, it's really difficult to get a unicorn. You know, so how difficult is it going to be to get a first year just wandering through the forest? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Again, it seems silly to me, but they go wandering anyways. And Filch is so happy about it. <laughs> Isn't it all possible? This is another way that. Dumbledore may be trying to test the waters a bit and trying to see if he could lure a weakened um, Voldemort out by putting Harry out there in the Forbidden Forest amidst all this on a night where he very could well could be out there in order to see. Hmm. I feel like that's not very cool to put four other <laughs> or three other students Not with him. cool, Dumbledore. <laughs> I mean, Harry, I, we've talked, I'm, though I completely disagree with it, you know, that it's not a right thing to do. Dumbledore knows Harry is destined to die, so to speak. So he's a little less protective with him. But then the other three, I mean, that's mm. just messed up. Yeah, Dumbledore doesn't usually deal in collateral damage. Right. Yeah. I'm just going to say there's this line about could a werewolf be killing the unicorns? And Hagrid says they're not fast enough. Well, I've seen Prisoner of Azkaban, the movie. <laughs> and <laughs> I've seen fast. Professor Quirrell running, in, in at least in my imagination. And one of them seems a lot faster than the other. That's all. I'm going to leave it there. Hmm. Yeah. I think yeah. werewolves seem like they can run pretty well, fast. I know it's uh, become a bit of a joke, but um, I just want to bring up just really quickly and just put it out there. I mean, for all for all to hear. The lead up for to the world this is really for the world to hear. But uh, we do find out that they give instructions, or Hagrid gives instructions oh that if you find anything, then send up some green sparks. Oh, and here we go. And if you're in danger, send up some red sparks. Now. I don't know exactly what was was going through. Socialism. I yeah, that, that must that must be it. That must be. It. I don't know what was going through uh, her mind to, to write in these care or these colors once again. 
But it's gotta well, be they've got to have something that she lets could've, him know. Well, I, she could have, or Hagrid could have used yellow sparks. I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. Classic like, red light, green yeah, light. Yeah, green means go. Yeah. Red means stop. Yeah. I don't know. I will say, two and a half year old movie with Green means go. Yeah. You know green means go and red means stop. Because you drive in cars yeah. that use that all the time. Yeah, they don't. If you're in the wizarding world, why should you learn red light, green light? That's There's never a context yeah, where that's appropriate for true. you. Your they question was how J.K. Rowling came up yeah. with this, mm-hmm. which is she's a muggle and right. she drives. Right. I'm sure. Mm. I uh, I still think that's. Not the answer we're looking for. It's out there. It's not the answer you're looking <laughs> for. You promised us by the end of this book you were going to have All some right. kind of answer and on the I'll symbolism of these colors. I'll have something, but I would love to hear, you know, responses as to why they think that, you know, red versus green. What what do these colors mean? So, Dear listeners, yeah, send us yeah, your please, thoughts. Please send us any thoughts you have on that. My thoughts are that you're the only one who has thoughts on that. Oh, no. <laughs> we did have a letter from Germany. Oh, yeah? Who was... That that said that the listener was tracking with Matt on the no. color theory. He did. You know? I remember that. We read that. He one. said, "Now all I can do is see the colors when I read." Yeah, I mean, the it book. could be related to the planets. We've got Mars bright Mars, tonight, Mars, which is a red. red. It's a red planet. It I'm is. Putting out there. The grass is green on the tree on the oh. ground, and yeah. if there is something going on in there. this book with colors, like <laughs> Great Gatsby, where like the most famous. Part of that book is the color symbolism, oh, yeah. and nobody has yet figured out <laughs> yeah. that she's going F. Scott Fitzgerald with the colors. I think it's then there. Matt, you are a genius. I just don't think anybody's picked it up until now. Okay. Oh, I think. Uh, have this... we picked it up yet? Or uh, yeah, we're talking about it right now. We picked this up <laughs> earlier. You mentioned the unicorn blood. Do you have a theory about that? I don't know. I mean, we don't know it, what color unicorn blood is. It's yeah, silver. It's silver. Yeah. We all know what color it is. <laughs> Read the book. <laughs> But yeah, I, I don't know about unicorn blood. I just think, I mean, silver is a pretty awesome color, you know, to have is the blood running through your circulatory system. I don't know. I just think that was cool. Well, I mean, I feel like it's just, it's Mercury. That's a planet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Very astute. the unicorn is a symbol, like, because it's like pure white, it's the symbol of like yeah. innocence. Yeah. And its blood just can't be red, and silver is sort of close to white. So to me, it just it just makes sense that its blood would be another sort of pure kind of color. Yeah. Well, if it really is that the colors are chosen really because of J.K. Rowling's muggle experience, not because of anything in the wizarding world, perhaps it's just commercialization. We all know that Disney movies use lime green all the time to designate evil, right? Basically every Disney movie does so. Mm-hmm. Perhaps she anticipated that she would be selling the movie rights to Harry Potter, to Disney. She did not and, anticipate that. And she didn't do that. She didn't. <laughs> but maybe that was part of the idea at the beginning. And, um, you know, this would fit with the color symbolism that Disney already had in mind. I'm sticking with the traffic lights. Mm. I'm sticking with she well, just needed colors. Well, that... you guys just wait because there's a mind-blowing explanation that's coming your way. Oh, All we're right. waiting. I'm ready. <laughs> Goodness gracious. <clears throat> All right, well... I want to talk about the centaurs. What do you guys let's, think about, let's talk about the centaurs? Them. They meet, you know, we finally meet centaurs, which are just awesome creatures in the Forbidden Forest. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, before before we meet the centaurs, oh, though, please. we we see the cloaked figure oh, okay. drinking. Well, we meet centaurs. No, no, we before. meet. No, no, no. Do we? Yeah. yeah. Before and before Ronan. drinking the blood, well, now we hear something out in the woods. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we hear the rustling. Oh yeah, we hear the slithering and, over dead leaves. And they're like, "Oh, that's what, it what is that?" Sounded like a cloak trailing oh, along yes, the ground. Oh yes, yes, yes. I see. I but see. then uh, Ronan shows up. Yeah. And they have the curious saying that, ah, Mars is very bright tonight. They repeat mm-hmm. that over and over yeah. and over. What do you guys think that means? Mars is the god of war yes. in Roman culture. Yes. And I thought about that because Matt loves Roman culture. I do, I do. So I thought the, the centaurs operating in this super mystic sort of mm. world, you know, Hagrid's asking them, have you seen anything? And they say, Mars is bright tonight. So they're operating in their own culture. Yes, we've seen something. Mm-hmm. And it's that war is coming, and that's their way of letting Hagrid know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he doesn't answer Hagrid, you know, directly. Mm-hmm. And Hagrid says they never do. But, I mean, is it because they know? I mean, they know the answer. They just don't want to tell you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing is, is it's like on so many levels, like war is coming, Mars is bright tonight, yeah. war is coming, but like there's this bigger war coming. Yeah. There's sort of this idea, I think of Lord of the Rings, like the elven wisdom, mm-hmm. knowing things to come maybe. Yeah. I don't know if that's totally shooting in the dark, but it does seem like it could be prophetic for the whole future of the series too. Yeah. Well, we, we do uh, see them have a conversation where, um, they're they're angry that one of the centaurs has said something or interfered with Harry yeah. and it's have you not seen what is written in the stars? Mm-hmm. So the real implication is that they do have a good idea of at least what astrologically uh, the sky is saying is coming. It's yeah. Mars is bright tonight, but also. Maybe more specifically, we see something about these people who are in front of us, yeah. particularly Harry. Yeah, and I think that yeah, that's jumping a little bit for when he for Rins, uh rescues Harry. Mm-hmm. I mean, and you know they come in and they're so angry. You know, and number one, I guess we see that Ferenz is different than the other centaurs, and I think we see that in other books as well. Uh, that the other centaurs are very hands off. They see that something is going on in the wizarding world because they've been able to read it through the stars and you know they're they're willing to let it happen um uh, which i think brings up the question um if you know something bad is is going to happen do you actively fight against it or are you more fatalistic and think ah it's going to happen no matter what i do kind of like the centaurs are doing and we're just going to let it happen i mean it's it's written in the stars um, I mean, like, th- this this star gazing, you know, and telling the, the future, I think, goes into something bigger. I mean, is J.K. Rowling here? Is she sa- basically predicting that Harry has to die? You know, I mean, maybe that was the time right there. What Have you seen the stars? The, the boy who lived is supposed to die. Um, mm-hmm. And may- maybe that's something, you know, that she was predicting even right here. Um, I, I don't know. I, saw, I, I read that, and I thought, oh, I mean, maybe... Again, she had this clear trajectory mm-hmm. that she knew Harry was going to have to die, mm-hmm. and the prophecy was told and, and all that. Um, but, yeah, being back to the question, should you, if you know something is, is going to happen, something bad is going to happen, but you're so insignificant and small maybe that you don't, you know, you don't think you can affect any change, I mean, should you, should you even try? I don't know, that's a deep question, but... Yeah, she does toy with the fate uh, mm-hmm. I- idea. Yeah. Um, and it seems like this, the centaurs, their philosophy is 
uh, fate is what it is, therefore we must not interfere. Yeah. Whereas what, if Rowling is foreshadowing for us, she's, she's saying, well, it's written in the stars. Interfere all you like. It's written in the stars. Mm-hmm. Like even your interference in some way is is worked into the plan. You're you're getting where you're going. It's like those stories or movies where somebody does sort of have this insight into where their destiny is headed. And everything that they do only confirms the path that leads them to that final place. Yeah. Um, I definitely think you're onto something with rolling, foreshadowing uh, for us. But... The thing is, the again, and she's brilliant with this, the centaurs are so mystical, their heads are so in the clouds, and Hagrid dismisses them so quickly that I think it's easy for us to bypass that without thinking about what it means about the larger narrative that we're, we're working our way through. I also thought that this centaur, it, uh, fortune telling and all that, I mean, it, it almost re- reminded me something of like, something like religion, you know? I mean, she doesn't go into religion here uh, in Harry Potter books, but um, I mean, it reminded me of something like it, you know? I, I think in most of the books, even Hermione, you know, like hates, you know, uh, you know, reading tea leaves, I mean, in fact, goes through and, you know, I mean, doesn't even, quits the, the course, you know, I mean, about fortune telling and it, it becomes more of like, and an, I guess an art, um, uh, just reading the stars and, and uh, reading the crystal balls and, you know, it's not a hard science like maybe, I, I guess, transfiguration, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, so I even feel like she's making... A distinction in the way that we have, I guess, uh, our hard sciences versus quote-unquote soft sciences and like religion and sociology versus, you know, biology, chemistry, and, and things like that. Um, I, I felt like it was a little bit of, uh, I guess, a, a dichotomy there yeah. between the two. She um, also is super skeptical of the Hallows, like when Harry's yeah. ready to believe them and pursue them, she's doesn't she kind of thinks it's ridiculous mm-hmm. yeah i mean it it's it's introducing this much larger question which is is big in philosophy but it's big in art as well the question of free will versus fate yeah um i think she's sort of tipping her cap to it so that 11 year olds reading this story sort of get intrigued by it but quick quickly move on from it it's certainly something that's going to emerge as the books progress Um, particularly when uh, we hear the prophecy for the first time and when we get a snippet into snape's um, conversation with dumbledore about preparing the kid to be slaughtered Mm. that's when i feel like in, in terms of the Harry Potter canon, the questions about uh, this whole universe moving toward a destiny, to what extent can you fight it? Well, at least Dumbledore doesn't think you can fight it. Yeah. Dumbledore isn't interested in fighting what has been foretold about Harry. 
Um, that doesn't mean that he goes passive. Rather, I think Dumbledore uses whatever agency, wisdom, cleverness, power he has to use where the prophecy says things are going to the advantage of good against Voldemort's evil. In that case, I'd say Voldemort, or excuse me, Dumbledore and the centaurs believe the same thing about the validity of these sort of prophetic arts, but they have very different ways of responding to it. I figured if I talked long enough, I'd eventually convince myself of something. <laughs> I had a thought, and it, I looked at the baby, and it went away. I was like, oh, oh he's in his swing. Um, <laughs> shoot, oh, I was going to say, I think Dumbledore also uses it to train and prepare. He doesn't just use the knowledge for good, but he's actively, like, training Harry up, putting him in dangerous mm. situations, exposing him to temptations, seeing how he does. So mm. I think that's another part of his strategy. Do, do you think uh, that Dumbledore knows that Harry is going into the Forbidden Forest. Yes. And that Voldemort is, in fact, there. So a yes and then a no. Well, I don't know, because later in um, A Prince's Tale, in Book 7, when we're hearing Dumbledore and Snape talking through Snape's memories, he says, keep an eye on Quirrell. Mm -hmm. So he knows something is right. up. Yeah. I mean, I don't think he knows that Voldemort's sticking out of the back of his head. Probably not, but... I it always does feel like in book seven, Rowling is telling us Dumbledore really yeah. knew, which like he could is, have wanted another set it, of eyes on Coral, yeah, just so he didn't have to trail him. Yeah, when we're working through book one, as Sylvie and I are like on our own listening to the end of book seven, and Dumbledore says that, I'm like, real again, not cool, Dumbledore. Like, mm -hmm. if you if you really have this notion again, though. If if the prophecy is the prophecy and Dumbledore takes that deadly seriously, then, yeah, still I think what you're saying about him using these opportunities to prepare Harry for the fate that absolutely awaits him no matter what. Um, maybe the best um, explanation of how we can let Dumbledore off the hook. Yeah. I don't know, though, because I go back to what Vera said earlier about, you know, Dumbledore not being really being someone who observes collateral damage. So it's like, if he really knows that Voldemort is hanging out in the back of Quirrell's head, is he really going to let him, like, teach? Especially knowing that Voldemort once came and asked for a job and all these things, like trying to influence young minds. Like, is he really going to let Voldem Voldemort basically speak through Quirrell to all these kids? Even though two people's eyes are on Quirrell, that just doesn't, it doesn't add up. I don't know. I'm more inclined to believe that he just knew Quirrell was up to no good and maybe trying to steal the stone. I don't know. I can see both sides of it, but it's just hard for me to believe that he would let Voldemort basically teach children. Mm. <clears throat> <laughs> Yeah, I think it's I, I think we can get bogged down really quickly in trying to figure out what Dumbledore <laughs> knew and didn't knew and didn't know, which we've done several times already. Um. <laughs> I think though it's a testament to how good of a story it is though, that a bunch of Harry Potter nerds who have read these books more times than we can count still sit and have conversations arguing both ways and seeing both sides. Mm-hmm. 
to to craft a story where continued examination only deepens sort of the mystery of certain characters it it i think speaks to the beauty of the harry potter series just as a work of literary art well i think after harry uh comes across you know the hooded figure and his scar burns i mean this is the first time i guess it burns really intensely you know and again this is another i guess theme that happens throughout (laughs) most of the other books is that anytime voldemort is actively or sometimes i mean even indirectly involved i mean like his scar is hurting so uh his scar hurting is is something that will point to Voldemort, you know, mm-hmm. in the future. And I guess he pieces this together when he's actually asking Ferenz. And Ferenz is again, it's one of those where the centaurs, I think, they know who was in this forest. Um, and Ferenz is basically leading Harry to the answer, um, you know, without kind of telling it. He's confirming, but he's not straight up telling him the answer. I think maybe. Some of his centaur roots are, are maybe there, you know, holding him back from just talking like a wizard and just saying, oh, yeah, that's that guy, a hooded figure who you just encountered. That's that's Voldemort. Yeah. Um, but, mean, they, but he knows. But yeah, like for I mean, clearly the, the forest is not safe at this time, especially for you. Exactly. He knows exactly who he is and exactly what's mm-hmm. going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he knows. And he's, he's, you know, probing Harry with questions like. Who do you think would be, yeah. you know, that desperate you mm. know, to to drink unicorn blood? Who who uh, do you know what is in the the uh, the castle, which is supposed to be a big secret? You know, I mean, the sorcerer's stone is hidden in the castle, but Ferenz knows. Mm. Which you guess that means that the centaurs know, like all of them do. I guess from reading the stars, so they know things. It's obvious they do, um, but he's basically leading Harry to the truth that. Voldemort is alive. He's out there. I mean, you're like Hagrid was right when he said that. Oh, I think he's still out there somewhere, too tired to carry on. You know, he he's more than that. He's here and he's trying to come back. And this is, I mean, I guess is pointing to the climax of the book where Harry's going to have to confront because nobody else will listen. One of the things that stuck out to me in Ferenz's explanation uh, was uh, the blood of a unicorn will keep you alive even if you are an inch from death but at a terrible price you have slain something pure and defenseless to save yourself Um, that idea of sacrificing something else for benefit of self versus the, the opposite of that sacrificing self for the benefit of others, is one of the key themes that defines the opposition between Harry and Voldemort um, throughout the entire series. Yeah. Voldemort over and over ruthlessly demonstrates that he is willing to sacrifice uh, those under him, those who have pledged loyalty to him, those who are innocent, um, even, even just muggle muggle bystanders um in his quest to benefit himself whereas in every moment where harry has the opportunity um he takes 
the opposite path. Oh, snap. I just made a connection. Uh-oh. Um, so, like, he's drinking the unicorn blood, and then when Voldemort later drinks Harry's blood, and then how much is Harry and the unicorn a symbol? Or is the unicorn a foreshadowing of Harry? Hmm. In my mind, this is super profound. Right. No, I see what you're going there. I see where you're... In book four, yeah, he ingests Harry's blood to to make himself stronger. Yeah, but ultimately, Harry's blood is what like protects good, you know, and is used to destroy Voldemort. And Harry, to us, is sort of the symbol of innocence and purity as well, just like the unicorn, like defenseless, no parents. And it's interesting that one of the things. I think it's Ronan and Bane say is it's always the innocent who die first, which is also sort of another little well, he, testament innocence, to... Innocence is a traditional theme with unicorns. I, I recall correctly the in the Arthurian legends with regards to unicorns, the only way to catch one was to have a virgin yeah. lure it away because one that was already pure and innocent could similarly draw one that was pure and innocent only later to be tricked which is um you know in the Arthurian tale meant to also be sort of symbolic of jesus and judas that one who appeared innocent could then draw out one who actually was to slaughter interesting i can't see quarrel i mean but he in, appeared in, in, innocent innocently saying come here <laughs> come here, unicorn. Come here. Yeah, I, I, come hither. But he does give off the frail vibe. I guess right. Right. Yeah, you don't maybe. think he's. I guess he could have been alluring it. I, in, in my head, it's always just like the in the movie, you know, like the swoopy black yeah. cloak just takes it down. This is silly, but could you say Asio unicorn? <laughs> I don't think so. It's a pretty powerful magical creature. Yeah, that's true. That's fair. I mean, gotta be I will to say, because I mean, Harry says Asio Hagrid in book seven when they're crossing the border into um, the Tonks's home, and we're led to believe that somehow he saves Hagrid, brings them into the border by saying Asio Hagrid. So you yeah. can obviously bring big things <laughs> with the Asio spell. I guess. I guess Side if that were note, true, though, Hagrid you had to say. Asio, you could just do that for everything yeah. and be lazy and happy. Yeah. I'm just saying, yeah. sit Voldemort. on the couch. Asio, Harry Potter. <laughs> right. Whatever you yeah, need. I won't go to the grocery store. Just send it my way from Lowe's Foods. But also with that quote about the innocent that you brought up, that's another just quote laying it on thick. I think the second half of that quote is it's something like, as it was before, it is now. You know, mm-hmm. it's the innocent that. So, meaning mm-hmm. when Voldemort came to power, uh-huh. the innocent died first. You know, yeah, so again, right. it's laying it on thick that they know Voldemort's coming back. It's yeah. just a matter of time. Let's not mess with this. Hmm. Any other uh, thoughts? I actually do have one more thought. Just one more thought. Um, and it's at the very end when they get back to uh, Hogwarts mm. and there's, they're getting ready to go to bed. I mean, Harry's, you know, basically he's finally found out that Voldemort's out there. We've got to do something about this. He's putting pieces together. 
And then, okay, it's been a long night, you know, serving our detention that's probably lasted until 3 or 4 a.m. Um, and then pulls back the covers, and there's a note, you know, written with his invisibility cloak just in case. So it's given to him pretty much right before this pivotal moment mm -hmm. where he's getting ready to take a huge chance. And I think we would like to think we know who, you know, wrote this to Harry. Well, certainly Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's got to be Dumbledore. And again, this is just one of those things where does Dumbledore know that Harry is mm -hmm. going down the trap door mm -hmm. to confront Voldemort? Is he giving him practice to fight Voldemort, or does or, he think that... Yeah. Voldemort this could is, be it. This could be it. This yeah. Voldemort is getting the ready prophecy to kill could be Harry. answered tonight. Yes. <laughs> Here, Harry, here's the invisibility cloak, so you can go to your death. <laughs> Good yeah. luck. Just in case. But I'm gonna keep giving off this nice old man vibe. It's so bleak, like looking back at this book after reading the seventh one and, and trying to think, you know, was that Dumbledore's intention? Mm -hmm. Right. So hard. Yeah. But. Well, I wanted to say one more thing, too, if I could. Um, just because we, we got to Frenzy, who is sort of, you know, he gets in trouble with the other centaurs for carrying Harry on his back. Mm -hmm. And I just, it's sort of like what Trevor was saying earlier about how we tend to like who Harry likes. But I was just reminded of how in every race or species that we meet, there's like one standout character who we are made to root for because either Harry likes them or we love them for whatever reason. Like there's Dobby in the house elves. Like he stands out because he doesn't want to, he wants to be against their house elf culture. He wants to be free. And then there's friends who wants to sort of help Harry, which we've seen, like he carries them on his back. He gives them these clues. So he's trying to help Harry. So they're at Lupin, a werewolf who, I mean, we don't really meet any other werewolf apart from Fenrir Greyback, yeah, but they're obvious foils of one another. Um, and there's just always this character that pushes against the culture, and that's what we're made to root for, which I think is just really interesting since, like, mm -hmm. culturally for us right now, like, anything that pushes against culture is, like, in and hip and trending. So I think it's interesting that she even does that with, like, species. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but it's not, we're not just <laughs> identifying, like, the cultures and seeing them sort of struggle against one another or struggle against, you know, the oppression, right, in a broad sense we're identifying with particular individuals that are often in a struggle within that own, mm -hmm. their own sort of subcultural context. Yeah. And it's not culture versus culture. It's, it's looking much more narrowly. Yeah. I feel like each time though, it's, they're being oppressed by their own culture most of the time. Like even like the Weasleys who are pure bloods who don't really believe in like, you know, the pure, pure blood, you know, royalty. Um, they're, generally we we love them because they're pushing against their own culture that's kind of oppressing them yeah all right well in our next episode we are going to leave the forbidden forest uh, and journey through the trap door uh, with the gang in chapter 16 of Sorcerer's Stone. Until then, I want to remind you, you can get in touch with us, send your comments and questions. We would be glad to respond to them uh, in an upcoming episode if you send them to hpbcfanmail at gmail.com. But until then, Mischief Managed!